0: Here we are tonight. What we want to do is I want to spend about 15, 20 minutes or so laying out some things, and then we're going to show a teaching that was done about uh, a handful of years ago by Michael Youssef on um, heresies found in the shack, which is just a phenomenal message. Uh, Very, very well-respected biblical pastor who has been uh, pastoring and teaching probably longer than I've been alive, and I'm getting really old, so... Um, really, really appreciate what he had to share. The Lord kind of led me to that message last week when I was kind of wrestling with whether address, to address the issue of the shack again. We've been addressing it for years, but with the fact it's becoming a movie, with the fact that it sold 25 million copies, with the fact that it's basically on the end cap of just about every Christian bookstore in America, um... With the fact that Outreach Magazine and Outreach Ministry, which is massive, is promoting a five-week sermon series for any churches that want to mix the Bible with the shack, which tons of churches are doing, uh, in the midst of all of that, I was just stirred to say, "Okay, we need to respond to this." And was really what put me over the cap. The top is when I saw Calvary Chapel down south, uh, though we're not affiliated with them anymore, but. A calvary chapel down there showing the film tomorrow night and being very proud about it and acting like this is representing the lord jesus christ and so in the course of that i came across the the message that we're going to show that's about 38 minutes long um, but before we do that i want to kind of bring us up to speed on some other things and touch on a few things that michael yusuf doesn't touch on there's so much in this book i mean you can come at it from so many different ways to expose the heresy in it, the false teaching in it, the dangers in it. Um, just amazing how, uh, rank, how much rank heresy is in this thing. And yet, for some reason, it's been brought in uh, to Christianum as something that is of the Lord. When I see it being nothing of the sort and really being something that's not just uh, filled with some false doctrine and so forth, but something that really just seems very demonic in its nature. Well, first of all, before we start getting to some of these things, I just want to answer maybe a question of, well, why are we doing this tonight? You know, that's that. We teach the Word of God here. We do it faithfully. So why don't we just, you know what, continue to go through the Word of God systematically on a night tonight. We could be in Exodus. Why take the time to address this? Well, number one, I already talked about you know, at the mass influence of this book and of the movie and, you know what, how many people are holding it up as something that is Christian. Um, with all the false teaching in it, we got to understand that we are called to contend earnestly for the faith. There are certain things that come along that we just really have to speak on. In fact, we'll, Lord willing, see this Sunday that the scripture says, if you know the right thing to do and you don't do it, It's sinful. And there's a lot of these things, you know, that come and go, and then there's other things that are so massive, I really feel they have to be spoken on. Truth has to come out. These things have to be exposed, and to not do so is on the borderline of, of, of really being in a place of disobedience. Jude verse 3, and it's there in your notes. It will be up here. It says, Beloved, while I was very diligent to write to you concerning our common salvation, I found it necessary to write to you exhorting you you to contend earnestly for the faith. And notice, contend earnestly. This is an urgency. This isn't something to be done lightly or taken lightly, but it's a picture of a continual war being waged. Exhorting you to contend earnestly for the faith, which which was once for all delivered to the saints. For certain men have crept in unnoticed, who long ago were marked out for this condemnation, ungodly men who turned the grace of our God into lewdness, And deny our only Lord God and our Lord Jesus Christ. So Jude here and in many of the the other epistles, uh, it talks about false teachers, false gospels, um, false doctrines being snuck into the church. Listen, the enemy never shows up, walks into the door with horns and a pitchfork and a pointy tail and say, here I am. But the Bible speaks about uh, wolves in sheep's clothing. And whether these individuals know that they're doing this or not, I don't know. I'm not the person to judge their heart. Only God can do that. I'm not judging any hearts tonight, but absolutely we are to test doctrines. We're to test those things that are being held up as Christian, whether they are or not. And our standard is not our opinion, not our feeling, not if it helped me or not, not if it helped my neighbor or not, but is it lined up with the Word of God. The Word of God is our standard. And we cannot have a low view of the Word of God. And I really think the popularity of this book is in part because there is such a low view of God's Word in the world today. And sadly, there's a low view of God's Word in much of what is called the church or Christendom today. We see really, really clearly in Scripture that individuals that preach false gospels are accursed. And again, it's not my place to make the judgment concerning one's heart. But absolutely the standard is the word of God. And the word of God says if someone comes and they preaches a false gospel, that they are under a curse. Galatians 1.6. I marvel that you are turning away so soon from him who called you in the grace of Christ to a different gospel, which is not another, but there are some who trouble you and want to pervert or corrupt the gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel from heaven preach any, any other gospel to you, then what we have preached to you, let him be accursed. And as we have said before, so now I say again, if anyone preaches any other gospel to you, than that which you have received, let him be accursed. This is very clear. The gospel of Jesus Christ is Jesus died for our sins according to the scriptures. He was buried. He rose again from the grave according to the scriptures. And any who would repent and put their faith and trust in him, would have forgiveness of sins, an everlasting life, a right relationship with the living God. As Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. That is the gospel. And unfortunately, what you find in the shack and what you find presented in the ministry of William P. Young is absolutely a different gospel. There is no ifs, ands, or buts about it. Now, I'm not going to get into the premise of the book if you haven't read it. Michael Yusuf in the video we're going to show, does an excellent job of it, and there's no reason for me to rehash it. But basically what you find in the book is this individual who has had a tragedy, his daughter has been murdered, he is trying to figure things out, and he ends up going to the shack, thus the name of the book, and having these conversations with God. The Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit represented in different people. The Father being a, uh, a, a black woman. The Holy Spirit being an Asian man and Jesus being a Middle Eastern man. And uh, I, I won't even get into all the heresy in that. Michael Youssef touches on that, so I'll leave that to him. But what I do want to talk about are the major false gospels that are in this book. The first being universalism. Universalism is the unbiblical doctrine that all people will eventually be saved. That everybody... Doesn't matter who they are, how they live, whether they put faith in Christ here on earth or not, eventually all of them will be in heaven and all of them will be saved. Paul Young told Wade Burleson in an interview or a conversation, and you can see the reference there in your notes, he said, Paul Young told me he is a hopeful universalist. And so it's this idea that again, he believes that everybody one way or another will end up in heaven. Now, again, many may step back and say, well, that sounds like a wonderful thing, and anyone can go to heaven, but absolutely, you can only go if you choose to put faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. In the book, The Shack, on page 182, the the Jesus in the Shack tells Mac, he says, those who love me come from every system that exists. They were Buddhists or Mormons, Baptists or Muslims. I have no desire to make them Christians. But I do want to join them in their transformation into sons and daughters of my papa, into my brothers and sisters. So you see, no desire to convert people to Christianity. And again, in the Bible, followers of Christ are called Christians. No desire for that. but again, instead this idea that one way or another, everyone will be joined to the Father in fellowship, because God is going to allow them to come as they are. Also in page 109 of the shack, again, the Jesus of the shack tells Mac uh, that he is the best way any human can relate to Papa. And notice, he doesn't say the only way, but he says the best way. This is a contradiction to what Jesus Christ and the word of God says. Does Jesus say I'm the best way to come to the Father? He doesn't say that. In John 14, 6, Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father except through me. Jesus Christ is the only way. He is not another way, and He is not simply the best way. Again, in the garden, remember Jesus said to the Father, if there is any other way, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, let your will be done. And for Jesus to go to the cross just to make another way, it really blasphemes the cross of Calvary, and it tramples the shed blood of Jesus Christ underfoot. And I take issue with that. I think the Lord takes great issue with that. Look, at, if you were to come to Refuge Church, as you guys know, at tuscadero when it was designed, it was like spaghetti was taken out and it was thrown down all the different roads and whatnot. I could literally probably tell you five or six ways to get to this building. But if I knew where you were coming from, I could give you the best route, the best way to get here. But that doesn't apply, it's the only way. And yet in this book, we see this universalism presented, and you'll see this in several statements from William P. Young. He's very bold about it. He believes that everybody will eventually end up in heaven, no matter what choices or decisions they make here on earth, whether to put faith in Christ or not. Matthew seven thirteen, Jesus said, Enter by the narrow gate, for wide is the gate, and broad is the way that leads to destruction. And there are many who go in by it, but narrow is the gate, and difficult is the way which leads to life, and there are few who find it. That's a contradiction to universalism. Jesus made, it, Jesus made it very clear many will, again, be under judgment, will go to an eternal hell, but there are few that will come to faith in him and have eternal life. Next, we find in this book pantheism being presented. This is an unbiblical doctrine that identifies God with the universe or regards the universe as a manifestation of God. It teaches that God is everywhere and in everything, or in other words, all is God. And yet we do not find this in the scriptures. In Genesis 2.16, it says, And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, Of every tree of the garden you may freely eat, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. Notice here, For in the day you eat of it you shall surely die. That word die in the Hebrew means Separation. God is the giver of life. God had given man life. Man was in fellowship with holy God because there was no sin. And when man chose to eat of that tree, he was separated from God Almighty. God did not dwell in me before I came to Jesus Christ. God did not dwell in you before you came to Jesus Christ. God does not dwell in the unbeliever because sin and light, sin and holiness cannot be mixed together. We see this clearly in Scripture. Ephesians 2.11, it says, Therefore remember that you, once Gentiles in the flesh, who are called uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, made in the flesh by hands, that at that time you were without Christ, being aliens from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers from the covenants of promise, having no hope, notice here, and without God in the world. But now in Christ you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. And so we see this clearly in Scripture. Before we came to know the Lord, we were without Christ. In faith in Jesus, now the Holy Spirit comes to dwell within us. And yet you see this pantheism being peddled throughout Christendom today. And individuals looking right past it because either they're biblically illiterate, they're ignorant and not looking, or they just don't care. I've talked about this before. Rick Warren in The Purpose Driven Life preaches pantheism. He deliberately quotes the New Century version of Ephesians 4, 6 that says, He rules everything and is everywhere as in, and is in everything. This was called out in the first printing of this book, that it was pantheism. All the printings later, guess what? It's still in there. Sarah Young in Jesus Calling does the exact same thing. The July 8th message message on page 199, Sarah Young says she received from Jesus that he said, I am above all as well in all. Did the Lord dwell in you before you came to faith in Jesus Christ? No, our sin separates us from the Lord. And then in the shack on page 112, again, the Jesus of the shack says, God who is the ground of all being, dwells in, around, and through all things. Again, this is a lie. This promotes that universalism idea that God is everywhere and in everything. We are all God, and so we will all end up again in heaven and so forth. You do not find this in Scripture. We find a holy God who created man, gave man a free will, and man chose to say, I want to be my own God. We're not the same God. You know what? Level as the Lord. And yet again, the shack even exalts man above God in many ways. And the video, the teaching that Michael Yusuf uh, brings, brings that out. Also, William Young capitalizes the letter C in the word creation at least 20 times in the shack. The capital C reflects what his Jesus is teaching that God is in all things, including creation. It's the idea, again, of deifying the world this idea of earth worship, and so forth. Also, we know that the author and the book deny the substitutionary atonement of Jesus Christ on the cross. He does not believe, nor does the book teach, that Jesus went to the cross to atone for our sins. We know, again, that God is holy. God is just. God is always also loving. And yet, when we sin. There was a price to be paid for our sin. Again, God told man, if you eat of this tree, you're going to die. Physical death set in. Separation from God came. Man was in a place of sin. Now he needed a bridge back. He needed a sinless Savior to go to the cross for him. That is the gospel. Jesus Christ lived a sinless life. We, we just sung about it. He went to the cross, and he took the wrath due me. He took the wrath due you upon himself. He was buried in the grave. He rose again on the third day again, that if any will put faith in Him, they'll receive forgiveness and everlasting life. You could even say the only sin that's not forgiven is the sin of unbelief. It's really in line with blaspheming of the Holy Spirit. The one is in that place until they come to faith in Jesus Christ. But He paid the penalty to satisfy the justice of the Father. But notice, June 29th, 2010, it says this past Friday night, author and researcher Ray Youngen, attended a lecture at Concordia University in Portland, Oregon to hear the Shack author, William Paul Young. The name of Young's talk was, Can God Really Be That Good? During the talk, Young told the audience that, quote, the God of evangelical Christianity is a monster. He was referring to the evangelical belief that God is the God of judgment and will judge the unbelieving. Young also rejects the biblical view of atonement, whereas Jesus died as a substitute for us to pay the price for our sins. This view by Young is evident in a radio interview he had one year ago where he rejected this view of atonement. And you can go online and read the whole thing or listen to it, but basically the individual interviewing him said, I take it that you wouldn't. You wouldn't agree that the cross was a place of punishment for our sin. His answer was, no, I don't. I am not a penal substitution reformation point of view. And then on page 120 of the shack, again, the God of the shack says, I don't need to punish people for sin. Sin is his own punishment, devouring you from the inside. It is not my purpose to punish it. It is my joy to cure it. And this is such double speak because what is the cure for sin? It was Jesus being punished for us. Absolutely, the cure, the cure is Jesus taking the wrath to us. This is the gospel. This is the gospel. 1 Corinthians 15, one, Moreover, brethren, I declare to you the gospel which I preached to you, which also you received in and which you stand, by which you are also saved, if you hold fast that word which I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. And we get the gospel. For I delivered to you, first of all, that which I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried, that he rose again on the third day according to the scriptures. And this man says, I don't believe that. And yet it's at the end cap of just about every Christian bookstore, again, in the United States of America. This movie being made, churches taking this and using it for counseling. I, I, I don't even it boggles my amount. I don't even know how how do you even get there. Listen to Isaiah 53:4. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken smitten by God and afflicted but he was wounded for our transgressions he was bruised for our iniquities the chastisement for our peace was upon him and by his stripes we are healed all we like sheep have gone astray we have turned everyone to his own way and the Lord has laid upon him the iniquity of us all so right here we see universalism pantheism and a rejection of the substitutionary atonement of Jesus Christ upon the cross of Calvary. False gospel, false gospel, false gospel, and yet it is presented as Christian. It is presented as representing the God of heaven who sent his son to die for us. It tramples the blood of Jesus Christ underfoot. You can't get saved reading this book, but what you can do is, you know what, comfort people going to hell that it's okay. You don't need to come to Christ. Again, listen, just about everybody who is somewhat familiar with the Scripture that looks at this thing and says, does this line up with the Word of God, will admit that it's full of doctrinal error. You can go online and type in the Shack Heresy, and you'll find articles from everything from Christianity Today to Charisma Magazine and everything in the middle talking about the error In the book. Yet because it plays on people's emotions and tickles their ears, it really appeals to man's flesh and rebellious sin nature, it just seems to get a pass. And the defense that is always brought up is it's just fiction. It's just a movie. Lighten up. What's wrong with you guys? And again, listen, if it was. Just down at Barnes & Noble and being presented as, you know what, one, one man's idea of God, that maybe would be fine. There's things like that all over the place. But it's presented as the God of the Bible, the Jesus Christ of the Bible. Again, it's put forth in Christian arenas and so forth as being something to be able to help you with your walk with God when it denies the gospel itself. But again, the defense always is not, well, it's sound biblically. No, the defense is, it's fiction. But listen what the Bible says about fiction. The word fable is used here in the New King James Version. If you look at this word in the Greek, it means a myth, a tale, or, are you ready for it, fiction. 1 Timothy 1.3, As I urge you when I went into Macedonia, remain in Ephesus, that you may charge some that they teach no other doctrine Nor give heed, which means to apply to oneself fables. Don't give heed to fiction. Don't take fiction and apply it to your walk, your Christianity. Don't do that. And endless genealogies was caused disputes rather than godly edification, which is in the faith. And then notice 2 Timothy 4, 1 through 5. And this is where I think we are seeing prophecy being fulfilled, He says, I charge you there before God and the Lord Jesus Christ, who will judge the living and the dead at His appearing and His kingdom. Preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Convince, rebuke, exhort with all longsuffering and teaching. Notice verse 3. For the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine, but according to their own desires, because they have itching ears, they will heap up for themselves teachers. Notice. And they will turn their ears away from the truth and be turned aside to... Fables, They will be turned aside to fiction. But you be watchful in all things. Endure afflictions. Do the work of an evangelist. Fulfill your ministries. I think it says a lot about the individual and where they are in their Christianity. Whether they want to turn aside to fables and uphold it as a thing of God. Or they want to stand in the word of God. And when this fable does not measure up with God's word, they say boom, are kicking you to the curb. We don't want anything to do with it if you're going to call this Christianity. It's a test. And listen, you look in the Word of God, false teachers and false prophets, part of the reason why the Lord will even allow them to continue to speak, it tests people. It shows where people's hearts are. There's another verse here in Second Peter about this. Basically, Peter says we didn't... You know what? Follow cunningly, de, de, uh, cunningly devised fables. He talks about what well, we saw, the resurrected Christ. And then he talks about standing on the prophetic word of God. Now, again, the defense always is that it's fiction. Yet it's very interesting. Paul Young himself says that the book is based on real conversations that he had with God. You guys, we might go a little bit over. I want to read this. Remember, I'm thinking about, this is, this is from his blog, August 15th, 2007. Remember, I'm thinking about writing this for my kids. So I'm searching for a good vehicle to communicate through. I figure a good story would be great, but I didn't have one. So I started with what I did have, conversations. So off and on for about three months, I wrote down conversations, conversations that I was having with God mostly, but which often included friends and family. This means that Mac, of course, is not a real person. My children would recognize that Mac is mostly me. That's the main character in the book. That Nan is a lot like Kim, my wife, and Missy and Kate, and the other characters often resemble our family members and friends. Is the story real? The story is fiction. I made it up. Now, having said that, I will add that the emotional pain with all its intensity and the process of tears into Mac's heart and soul are very real. I have my shack the place I had to go through to find healing. I have my great sadness. That's all real. And the conversations are very real and true. So is the story true? The pain, the loss, the grief, the process, the conversations, the questions, the anger, the longing, the secrets, the lies, the forgiveness are all are real. They are all true. So he is saying this, that everyone says is fiction is based on real conversations that he had with God. But I'll tell you right now, he was not talking to God. He was talking to a demon because the God of heaven would never say, Jesus is the best way. He would say, Jesus Christ is the only way. 1 Timothy 4.1. Now the Spirit expressly says that in latter times some will depart from the faith, giving heed to deceiving spirits and doctrines of demons, speaking lies and hypocrisy, having their own conscience seared with a hot iron. Listen, if all of a sudden you start having conversations with God, you better test every word that is being said. Because we know primarily God communicates to us through His word. Now the Holy Spirit can put impressed things upon our hearts, but God has spoken to us through His word, and we test everything by the word of God. And so what everyone is saying is just fiction, which that in itself does not measure up because it contradicts the word of God. We're not to heed fiction. Paul Young himself says these are conversations he had with God. Now again, and I'm almost done here, if it's just fiction or a fable, which we are to shun and when it contradicts the word of God and it's being presented as something that is Christian, and even worse, listen, if it's from conversations with demons... Why is it being mixed with the Bible and being held up as truth by so many? Why are so many churches promoting this as a good thing? Again, including churches that I know know better, certain Calvary chapels and such. Why are there so many accompanying Bible studies from the beginning? It was the shack and here's the shack Bible study. I thought it was just fiction, but you got a Bible study with it. And why is there again a five-week sermon series that accompanies the movie by outreach, which is this huge conglomerate that really sends their materials to about every church in america to try to help them grow their church numerically you can read the quote there that it talks about you know what they're offering a five-week sermon series uh that will and, and other things it talks about it'll bring you right up to easter and this is a book a movie that helps usher you in the presence of the holy spirit then of course you see a endorsement by joel houston from hill songs united amazing how they're just mixed in all this stuff but I ask the question, why do pastors and uh, churches promote such rank heresy? And ultimately, I don't know. I don't know anyone's heart. But I have to think it's perhaps one of five things. It's either A, ignorance, which I would hope is the case most of all, but I don't think it is. Perhaps it's apathy. I think maybe it's more so that. People just don't care. People don't care about the truth anymore. People have a low view of the word of God, yet God says, I honor my word above my name. Biblical illiteracy. I ran mean, into the pastors. They don't even know what the gospel is. Home group leaders and elders, they don't even know the gospel. They don't get it. And then, of course, you have hirelings, men that are just there for hire. I don't want to say anything. You know what? So-and-so gives a lot of money, and they rent the shack, and they like it. I don't want to say anything. I need to get paid. A lot of cowards. And then, of course, Heretics that promote such things, that are wolves in sheep's clothing. Again, we're not to mix truth with error, but we're to purge it out. Leaven and heresy and false Christ. Second Corinthians eleven three. But I fear lest somehow as the serpent deceived Eve by his craftiness, so your minds may be corrupted from the simplicity that is in Christ. For if he who comes preaches another Jesus whom we have not preached, or if you receive a different spirit which we have not received, or a different gospel which you have not accepted, You may well put up with it. And I'll tell you, the shack preaches another Jesus, another spirit, and another gospel. And not only people putting up with it, they're saying, bring it on in. Back the truck up. We're not to put up with this nonsense. So listen, the people, and I know this is being streamed and and whatnot. It's being put out there. It's just fiction. It's a movie. Look at, we're not going to put up with this, and neither should you. Again, lastly, if a defense isn't, it's just fiction. I've heard other people say, well, you know what? Yeah, baby Christians should know this, but I know better. And the book really helped me. It helped me so it's a good thing because I was helped. Me, 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 I was helped. So it helped me so it's good. Listen, we're called to love God first. We're loved to call truth and we are called to love God. Others, over again, our self, our experience, our emotionals, our false securities. So if one calls up the psychic hotline and Dion Warwick gives them a little bit of advice that helps them, does that make it okay? If someone does some tarot cards and, boy, I got the answer I was looking for, I'm happy now, does that make it Okay? This is not loving other people. Jesus said in John 8:32, you shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. I guarantee you, books like this and so forth bring people into deeper bondage while convincing them that they are in a better place. And then finally, 1 Timothy 4:16: take heed to yourself and to the doctrine, continue in them, for in doing this you will save both yourself and and those who hear you notice take heed to your doctrine not to your experience not to how you feel not to whether you think has something put you in a better place or not take heed to your doctrine your teaching let's go ahead and play this
1: I remember only this is to be the third time in all 33 years uh, that I have taken a sermon time, an entire sermon time, to focus on a book. If you are a member of this church, you must surely know that I am first and foremost a Bible preacher, that I'm first and foremost a Bible expositor that I am first and foremost an exhorter of people from the Word of God, not my opinions. That has always been, is, and always be my primary call until God calls me home. That's just who I am. And every now and again, I feel the sense of urgency to speak to this body of believers, uh, specifically to this body of believers, because that is my primary responsibility. Uh, This is the body over whom God called me to be, an under-shepherd. Our our real shepherd is the Lord Jesus Christ. I'm the under-shepherd. And as the under-shepherd, I have one primary responsibility, and that is to feed you, not on pop psychology or my ideas, but upon the Word of God. That's the only food that is worthy of the name. And that's what I do here. I feed you upon the Word of God. But also my primary responsibility is to protect the flock over whom the Lord has placed me as an under-shepherd. You and I are under obligation before God, to take all teaching, all preaching, especially my preaching, and place it in front of the mirror of the Word of God. And if it doesn't tally with the Word of God, toss it out. That's just a fact. Uh, And that is why I want to warn you, especially of books and teachings that are almost right, but devastatingly wrong. Um, teachings and preachings and books that have a measure of truth in them, but they're wrapped in a whole lot of poisonous dough. Uh, Hear me right on this one, because this is really important. And I know most of you would agree with me. That half-truth, almost right, outwardly appealing are far more dangerous than plain wrong and evil. Let me illustrate this. If you're walking along the way and you see a ditch, you're going to avoid it. It's clear, it's in front of you, it's marked. You're going to walk around it. And therefore, you're not going to fall in it. But if that ditch is covered with beautiful landscape and beautiful flowers, and if you're walking and not watching chances are you might fall in that ditch. And that's precisely what this popular novel, The Shack, is all about. It's a deep ditch that is covered with beautiful landscape. And sadly, to my heartbreak, and please listen, I do not make this statement in any form of exaggeration. I lost a lot of sleep over this. To my heartbreak, many Christians are falling in their ditch. Many churches are studying in their Sunday school classes. Uh, Many schools are handing it out to their students. Many pastors are singing its praises. Christians are giving it away by the caseful to their friends with statements like, It changed my life. Read this book. A minister said it was better than three years in seminary. All I can say is he went to a very sorry seminary. (laughs) But beloved, it is of vital importance for me to deal with this book. And in doing so, I know, listen carefully, I know that I am risking the anger and the ire of some of you who like this book. But I pray that God the Holy Spirit will open your eyes and give you discernment and open your heart that you would hear the truth as it is from the Word of God, not from Michael Yusuf. Some have said to me, to my heartbreak again, this book is better than the Bible. <laughs> that is why, for the first time since September 11, I've ever interrupted a series of messages in order to deal with something because I see it as that important. Uh, Began a series of messages on the Holy Spirit last week and will continue next week. But I'm also aware of the fact that some of you have not read the book. So you're saying, well man, I don't understand what he's talking about. No, 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 don't switch off. I want you to listen carefully because I'm going to tell you enough about the book uh, that you would not feel lost and hopefully that you won't go and buy it. My prayer... Is that after this message, that God the Holy Spirit is going to equip you to develop your own sense of discernment. That you will become very careful in the future as you read such books to be able to discern right from wrong. Learn to discern is the cry of my heart to you, my beloved, this morning. Learn to discern... Subtle errors. And I shared with you just two weeks ago how Jesus said in Matthew 24 that closer to the end, of t- end times, there's going to be an increase in the subtlety of deception. Learn to discern heresies even though they may be wrapped up in such powerful emotions that would hook you in indeed it hooked me I mean it's so powerful in its emotions and I'm not going to deny that and not only that I read the book underlined the book wrote on the side of the pages the author is Mr. William P. Young and he goes by Paul Young and he was a man who was a son of two missionary parents to New Guinea he went to Bible school and he had some pain in his life as a result of abuse, infidelity and the rest of it. He once believed biblical truth but he told a dear friend of his, a professor in the seminary by the name of Dr. James DeYoung, four years ago that he had embraced Christian universalism. Universalism is sweeping the landscape of American Christianity. This heresy tornado-like, has started in a small circle within the Unitarian Universalist Church and then began to sweep across the mainline denomination, literally destroying it in its wake. And now the winds of universalism is blowing so hard in the so-called evangelical churches, on those who so-called born again, of those who are supposed to believe in Jesus. That wind is blowing so hard that now is shaking the churches to its rafter. And I believe with all my heart, and this is my personal opinion, that this particular heresy is the greatest challenge to this generation. It is the greatest challenge that you and our children and me we're going to be facing. What is universalism? Simply put, that Jesus is a way to God. That he may be The best way, as the book puts it, he may be even a person who say he is my way, but he's not the only way. And therefore, the Hindu, the Buddhist, the Muslims, and the secularists, and the humanists, and the agnostics, they all are on different roads to heaven. They all have different ways of reaching the same destination, heaven. They all are going in different journeys to get to the same uh, direction, which is heaven. They all, as the book the Shack declares, are forgiven in the cross. And I want to say, if God wants to forgive every human being, why did Jesus come from heaven? Why did he have to die on a cross? Why didn't God just shout from heaven? He said, you're all forgiven. But to his credit, Mr. Young tried to answer the age-old question. Where is God when the world is full of pain and hurt? Beloved, let me stop here for a minute. There's a fallacy going on among Christians. Because when we come to church and we're all wearing our Sunday best. We we look great, and and some of you walk in here with pain. I got news for you: every one of you walk here with pain, including your pastor. (laughs) We all have different pains. We all have sufferings. As long as we're living in this world, welcome to the human race. But he's trying to answer the question: Why, if where where is God when it hurts? Where God when there's pain? But then he tried to answer the question not from the Word of God, but from imagination. Let me illustrate this. Suppose I I am in physical pain, and then a friend of mine would say, You know, I had similar pain to yours. Take this pill, this will really help me. And so I take that pill, and sure enough, it's a painkiller. So I'll take the pill and I feel good, temporary at least. (laughs) And all of a sudden I'll go around saying, this painkiller has changed my life. This is the greatest painkiller you can ever have. Try this painkiller. You got pain? Here's a painkiller. Take this one. And then I fall in love with that painkiller. Is that really the answer? Is that really the answer? No. What you need to do is to go to a competent physician. I thank God we've got a bunch of them in this church that I go to when I need help. Go to a competent physician who would deal with the very source of your pain. Go to a competent physician in order to help you to find out the source of the pain and how to cure the pain. If you are in emotional pain Uh, and and somebody says to you oh this fiction really helped me and then you take that fiction book and you fall in love with it and say like as I told you somebody said to me it's better than the Bible you are falling in love with the painkiller you are in love with the emotions that this book has squeezed out of you and what you need to do is to go to the great physician who is revealed only in the pages of the scripture. So what is that novel all about, especially for those of you who haven't read it? It's a tale of a man, fictitious man, of course, by the name of Mackenzie Phillips, or Mac for short, who had experienced uh, pain in his life and the brutal uh, murder of his daughter by a serial killer. And let me tell you something, there is no, I can't imagine, before God, I can't imagine anything worse than that. I would rather die a thousand deaths than experience anything like this. So I I, I understand how we all got hooked into that book. And then he receives an invitation, over three years later, he receives an invitation from God the Father in the mail. And he, to go and meet the Trinity, what he considered to be the Trinity... In the very shack where his daughter was murdered. And there, each member of the Trinity is in a bodily form. Heresy number one. I'm going to tell you more about this. The Trinity appear as follows. God the Father, named Papa, whose actual name is Eloise, which is Greek for tenderness. God the Father appears in a form of a large African-American woman who is always cooking in the kitchen. Although, at the end of the book, in a Hollywood kind of magic, she turns into a ponytailed, gray-headed man just to prove to Mac that God, both man and woman. Number two, Jesus is a Middle Eastern man, middle-aged, Dressed in a plaited shirt with a tool belt around his waist. The Holy Spirit appears as a delicate Asian woman named Sorayu means heir, who loves gardening. And the main character, Mac, meets with also another woman named Sophia, or Lady Wisdom. But the bulk of the novel is a dialogue between this character, Mac, and that trio, whom he calls the Holy Trinity. The topics of discussion range from the nature of Trinity to the cross to forgiveness. And as a result of this dialogue with this trio, Max' faith in God and the God of the Bible, which he believed in one stage, falls apart completely, is dismantled and fell apart, and then was replaced by a complete new understanding of who God is, and thus he becomes a changed man. And that is why people running around saying, this book changed my life. It gave me an idea what the Trinity is like. Listen to me, do not even try to imagine what the Trinity is like. If a preacher on television says to you, and I know some who would say the Trinity is very simple, let me explain it to you. It's one man, uh, and like me, for example, is a father uh, and a son uh, and and a grandfather. It's one person. Uh, Wrong. Oh, the Trinity is very simple. Let me explain it to you. You have steam, ice, and water, all the same thing, made the same thing. uh uh, uh wrong. Can't exist together. Do not try to explain the Trinity. There are three persons in one God. I don't care who tries to explain it. It is wrong. No matter what it is, you cannot explain it. Sadly, Many Christians have claimed that this book changed their lives because they began to understand the Trinity for the first time. That is not the Holy Trinity. And the question I want to ask them is, change your life to what? To what? While the author repeatedly claims that this is a work of fiction, And yet, no one can avoid or deny or escape his personal agenda that comes through the book again and again. Namely, that he himself turned his back on the God of the Bible and embraced the mishmash of universalism and liberalism. It is universalism that single-handedly destroyed Christianity in Europe and in England. And it is universalism that is working hard to destroy the faith of the remnant believers in American church today. Some thoughtful person called that book subversive. Another equally thoughtful person called it seductive. Dr. Al Mola called it undiluted heresy. Here's a summary of those heresies. I only summarize them for the sake of time. And you can even get more or less or whatever. I just summarize 13 points of error. Of departure from the truth of the scripture and the word of God. And the triune God that we know that he revealed himself in the scripture. Number one. That God the father was crucified with Jesus. Error number one, heresy number one, the Bible clearly says that he would not look upon his own beloved son when he hung on that cross carrying your sins and mine because his eyes are purer than to see sin and to look upon sin. Secondly, that God is completely limited by his love and he could not practice justice. Well, the Bible clearly says from cover to cover, cover that God's love and God's justice are two sides of the same coin of the personality and the character of God. Number three, that on the cross God forgave all humanity regardless whether they repent or not. Some choose relationship, but he forgave everybody. While Jesus said, only whomsoever will come will be saved. Number four, that any hierarchical structure, whether it be in the church or in the government, is evil. Our God is a God of order. I'm going to say more about this in a minute. Number five, God will never judge people for their sins. And yet the word of God repeatedly invites people to escape from the judgment of God that's going to come upon everyone who refused to believe in Jesus Christ. Come now. Escape now. And the urgency of that message throughout the pages of the scripture is so clear. Number six. That there is no hierarchical structure in the Godhead, just a circle of unity. And yet the Bible clearly said that Jesus submitted to the will of the Father. That doesn't mean that one is higher or better than the other, just different, unique role that each played. And Jesus said, I came to do the will of whom he sent me. I'm here to obey my Father repeatedly. He said, i send you the Holy Spirit Number seven, God submits to human wishes and choices. <laughs> Far from God submitting to us, Jesus said, Narrow is the way that leads to eternal life. We are to submit to Him in awe for his majesty and for his glory and for what he has accomplished for us. Number eight, justice will never take place because of love. Yet the Bible teaches very clearly that when love is rejected, when God's love is rejected again and again and again, and when the offer of salvation and forgiveness is rejected, justice must take place or else God sent Jesus Christ to die on the cross for nothing. Number 10. Jesus is walking with all people in their different journeys to God. And it doesn't matter... Which way you get to him. And yet Jesus said clearly, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And no one, no one, no one, no one, no one will come to the Father but by me. Number 11. Jesus is constantly being transformed with us humans, Jesus being transformed with us humans, Jesus who dwells in the splendor of heaven, who's on the right side, hand side of God, reigning and ruling the universe, is changing and trans- being transformed with us humans, and the Bible said in him there is no change, for he is yesterday, today, and forever, Amen. number 12. No need for faith or reconciliation with God because everyone will make it to heaven. Jesus said, only those who believe in me will have eternal life. Look, I did not make the rules. I just obeyed them as they made by God. Finally, the Bible is not true because it reduces God to pages, to paper. And yet the Bible said of itself, that it is God breathed. God breathed. Sure, there were many men throughout 1600 years extend over 1,800 years who have written different professions, different backgrounds, but because it's the Holy Spirit who jumped in their ink while they were writing, because the Holy Spirit came into their lives, they were writing the same message from Genesis to Revelation. And if you want to see more and read more about the place of Christ in the scripture, get my sermon on We Preach Christ. One of the most devastating aspects of this book, The Shack, is the absolute disrespect and disregard to the Holy God by this main character. Beloved, when Isaiah saw a glimpse of God's glory... He was so overwhelmed, he was so overcome, and he cries out in chapter 6 saying, Woe to me, for I am lost, for I am a man of unclean lips, and dwell in the midst of people who are unclean lips, for my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. In Exodus chapter 3, when Moses encountered God in the burning bush, he hid his face because he was afraid to look upon God's glory. In Exodus 33, Moses was given just a glimpse of God's glory because God told him that if you look upon my face, you'll die And John the Revelator, which I mentioned in the last message, this is a disciple whom Jesus loved, who leaned upon Jesus' shoulder when he was taken up to heaven and was given a revelation of the reigning, ruling, victorious Christ. He was so overwhelmed. He was so overcome because he saw the indwellers of heaven, the dwellers of heaven, the inhabitants of heaven crying, Holy, 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 Glory, Glory, Glory that he fell on his face. And yet we see a man who puts God on trial and uses foul language in the presence of so-called God the Father. And then he snaps at God with anger so much so that he makes God cry. Beloved, this is not someone who is in the presence of the holy God of heaven and earth. He is in the presence of a God Who is created in man's own image. A God who obeys man. A God who exists in man's figment of imagination a God who exists in man's needs and for man's needs and desires a God who is controlled and manipulated by man a God is like an idol of like a Hindu idol where they open the closet and get the idol out and have some talking to and then put that idol back and close the closet this is not the holy unrighteous creator God of the Bible this is not the powerful God who said let there be light and there was light In that book, Papa, who he calls God the Father, speaks to the main character, Mac, and says, we, referring to the Trinity, limit ourselves out of respect for you, humans. And that is why I said this is not the God of power and might. This is not El Shaddai. This is not the God whose eyes are purer than to look upon sin. This is not the God who hid his face from his beloved begotten son who coexisted with him since before eternity when he carried your sin on the cross, when he carried my sin on the cross. God is bowing to man? The author of the shack not only... Presents a false view of God. He presents a different God. Different from the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. But not only that. But he mocks the importance and the uniqueness of the Bible. He makes the Bible to be equal To whatever personal imagination of what God is like. Whatever you imagine God is like is equal to the Bible. Please listen carefully. Please listen carefully. God is spirit. And he does not have a body. Yet he chose to reveal himself in the masculine form. Nowhere does God reveal himself as a goddess. No wonder Oprah likes this book and promotes it. Listen to me, beloved friends. If we try to imagine what God is like, we will pay a hefty price. And I don't want to explain this to you because it's very important. The Bible is very clear dare not, dare not portray God in an image. It is impossible to make the creator part of the creation. Amen. Jesus said in John chapter 4 verse 24, God is spirit and he who worship him must worship him in truth and in spirit. The second commandment forbids us from making a visual portrayal of God. To worship such an image is pure idolatry. To worship an image of God is to worship the creation, not the creator portraying God the Father as an African-American woman or a white old man, I don't care which way it is, portraying the Holy Spirit as an Asian woman or white man, it makes no difference to me no matter what it is, is purely sinful. And we will reap the judgment of God if we fall for these heresies. No wonder the Apostle Paul, in Romans chapter 1, Verse 22 and 23, go home and read it carefully. In Romans chapter 1, verses 22 and 23, here's what he said. Listen carefully. Claiming to be wise, they become fools. And exchange the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man. It is only in the Bible, it is only in the Word of God, it's only... In that book, it's the only place where will God reveal himself of who he is. Any personal revelation of God is suspect. It's only in this book that God chooses to reveal himself. You might see angels. You might see heavenly being, but not Jesus. Do you know that in the book of Acts, the entire work of the Holy Spirit as, as, as the early church was being established, Jesus appeared only once and he appeared to Paul in order because it was it was clear that only those who can call themselves apostles are the ones who saw the resurrected Christ. So Jesus in his grace and his mercy, in order to affirm Paul as an apostle, he appeared to him on the road to Damascus, but it's the only time always angels, always heavenly beings, but never the glorified Jesus Christ who's in heaven. The Bible makes it very, very, very clear that ever since Adam and Eve rejected God's command, disobeyed God in the garden, God provided a plan for redeeming Everyone, everyone, everyone who will accept that plan—and it's only one plan, not 2,000, 2 million plans—one plan. And it's, he began to unfold it through the pages of the Old Testament. In nearly 2,000 years, at least 1,800 years, God began to unfold that plan, plan. And he began to unfold it. And began to unfold it. And those of you reading the daily chronological Bible with me, we've seen it in, in Jeremiah and prophesied. And we see it in, now in Ezekiel as it prophesied that one day God is going to reveal his son. That he's going to come and bring forgiveness. That the hearts are going to be changed into a heart of And throughout the pages of the Old Testament, God was beginning to unfold his plan. And then, 2,000 years ago, in the fullness of time, in his appointed time, he fully revealed that plan in his son, Jesus Christ, when he sent him to pay for the punishment of my sin and the punishment of your sin and the punishment of everyone who would come to him and receive that payment to be for himself and for herself. That's the plan of God. That's the plan of God. And for 2,000 years, missionaries have gone to the ends of the earth. They have suffered and they had died in the mission field proclaiming this good news. There's only one way to heaven and it's through Jesus Christ. For 2,000 years, they went around the globe at personal sacrifice and even loss of life proclaiming that whosoever may come will be forgiven. Whosoever will come will be forgiven. And they came from every tribe from every nation, from every corner of the globe and they, they, they continue to come from every tribe and from every nation and from every corner of the globe and soon the day is coming when Jesus Christ is going to sit on the judgment bench in order to separate those who've accepted his father's plan, who accepted their plan, his plan of salvation from those who did not he is going to separate them from the ones who want and sought to change that plan. Well, he's going to separate them from the ones who try to modify that plan. They separate them from the ones who try to stretch that plan, the ones who try to make the plan relevant to people and popular to people, from the ones who try to rewrite his plan. And I wonder in my spirit, take it for what it is, if that separation has not already begun. But the question that you must ask yourself, please do not leave this place without answering it to yourself. The question you must ask yourself, am I willing to accept God's gift of eternal life as it is revealed in the scripture? Am I willing to accept God's salvation the way he provided it? Or do I want something else that may fit or suit my fancy? Something that accommodates to my wishes. Something that would accommodate to my desires. Something that accommodates to my emotions. Something that accommodates to my needs. Beloved, listen to me. I, I know I can stand here and tear myself apart. If God the Holy Spirit does not speak to you, what I'm saying will mean nothing. And that's been the cry of my heart all week. And the prayer of so many people around this place. Beloved, listen to me. Your eternal life hangs in the balance and depends on the answer to your question. This question. In his book, The Great Divorce, C.S. Lewis it's very interesting that people are comparing this book with C.S. Lewis's fictions and, 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 and John Bunyan's. They never depicted God the Father in the flesh in their fiction. Never. A C.S. Lewis, whom I quote a great deal here, in that book he said the following that ultimately there are two kinds of people. Two. Those who say to God right there in this life, Thy will, thy will be done and receive eternal life. And those to whom God is going to say in the end, in the day of judgment, you will, you will, you will be done. To come to God and now and say, thy plan, thy will be done in my life, ensures your eternal salvation. To say to God, I accept your plan of salvation unconditionally. It will bring you eternal life. To say to God, I accept the way you choose to reveal yourself in the pages of the scripture, not according to someone's imagination, will bring you eternal life. But when you insist on receiving or accepting a God who suits your fancy, accept his plan with some modification. Accept his plan as equal with somebody else's plan. That will cause God at the end. And I'll probably add from my own personal words, probably with tears in his eyes. To everyone who rejected his plan, he'll say, your will be done. You chose that. I didn't choose it for you. You chose it. You rejected me. You rejected my plan. Oh, I cried to the Lord. Not a single person in this room or watching on the screen would not accept God's plan of salvation. Because that's the only way to eternal life. I'm here to plead with you. Not to be blown away by every wind of doctrine. Not to be blown away by your emotions. Surely you know that I'm a guy, a guy who's an emotional guy. You know that. But never allow your emotion to control your mind. Let the Holy Spirit do that. Let the mind be the thermostat that sets the temperature of your emotions, of your heart. I'm here to plead with you. Cling to the God who loves you so much that he gave his all. The God of the Bible, the triune God. Don't be misled by all kind of warm and fuzzy descriptions that does not fit his own personal revelation in his book. And as we pray, if you're a person who have never accepted the plan of God for salvation, would you pray, Lord Jesus, I come to you. I receive you as my only Lord and Savior. Holy Spirit, teach me. Open my eyes so I can read your book with discernment. And if you're a person who knows the Lord and wandered off, you know, the Lord loves you and the reason you're here is because he loves you and he wants you to hear this message. Say, Lord Jesus, I have fallen in the temptation of trying to imagine you, what you're not. Help me to have discernment. Shall we all pray together? Passionately proclaiming.
0: Well, I don't care. It's just a book. <laughs> How can you not weigh this in the light of Scripture and be grieved? I hope tonight that you are equipped, stirred, encouraged... You heard the gospel message multiple times. If you haven't come to put faith in Jesus Christ, I would pray that you would do that tonight. Now, if you haven't already. And um, I'd encourage you to share these things with others. And some people really receive it well and are very thankful and grateful that you took the time to share these things with them because they didn't know. And other people are indifferent. They don't care. Um, But still, we're not going to be judged based on how people respond, but on what we do with the truth. And uh, pray for those folks. And uh, share these things with others. Again, all the pamphlets and things out there are for you. This was live stream tonight on our Facebook page. There's CDs and so forth. Take it, share it, hand it out, pray for folks. And uh, again, thank you for our time here tonight, God. We bless you. We honor you. We thank you. Thank you for all these folks that come out, God, that care about truth and very blessed to be here with them tonight. Lord, be with us as we fellowship now, Lord, as we leave this place. And we ask and pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless you.